soldiers than you did. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thanks for rejoining us uh, in this second segment. We're in the second hour right now, and uh, we actually have made connection with our next guest. Um, now, we're going to get back into the sort of U.S. election topic, but in a kind of a different way. Uh, we're also going to be looking at some of the foreign policy implications of both candidates, uh, but specifically looking at um, the the Hillary Clinton uh, cabal, if as it were, it's simply because she's uh, been around Washington longer and has accumulated uh, a cast of uh, interesting characters around her. I'm going to be joined right now by our next guest. He's a, a professor emeritus, Ottawa University. He's also the founder and editor of Global Research. Ca and this is Professor Michelle Chofedovsky uh, is going to be joining us right now. Hello, Professor. Thank you for joining us this week. Delighted to be on the program. Uh, I must say, observing the United States from Canada is an entirely different um, exercise because we don't have the the vibrations, the day to day vibrations, and and so on. But it's it it's it, it we're following it uh, by the hour. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. It's a bit overwhelming if you're here in the United States. Uh, it's an avalanche of uh, media coverage, and it seems to be droning the same talking points from network to network. But um, obviously, the story's taken an odd turn on Friday, uh, which we discussed earlier in this show. But um, a lot of talk, um, Professor, about uh, especially in. I've never seen this before in a U.S. election, as far as I can remember. You know, really talking up the uh, the war, and I think this is a follow up of uh, eight years of Bush and eight years of Obama, where the United States and NATO has been entangled in more conflicts than ever before. And so, this idea of national security being a really important part of the election process. We even have town hall meetings that discuss national security, but it's not national security. It's it's sort of national uh, offensive strategy, as it were, projecting American power. And on both sides of this uh, campaign, on the Trump and Clinton side, some outrageous things have been said. And on the Hillary Clinton side, she has really hung her hat on this confrontation with Russia and blaming Putin for interfering in the U.S. elections and my concern is, and what I want to talk to you about, is how this reverberates. What would a Hillary Clinton foreign policy a presidency look like? Um, who might be her secretary of defense? Who, who might be her secretary of state? What would this mean? What would the implications be uh, worldwide, especially in already hot areas like the Middle East? That's a very important question. Uh, let me perhaps give a... Um go back a little bit um, to a statement which was made in the Senate Armed Services Committee um, a a couple of weeks back by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Francis Dunford, as you recall. Now, Dunford actually 
confirmed in no uncertain terms that a no-fly zone in Syria or over Syria, as proposed uh, by uh, Hillary Clinton in her election campaign, would uh, lead to escalation and could, in fact, um, lead to uh, a war between Russia and the United States of of America. Um, And the question there is that if a Clinton administration were to be formed, uh, General Dunford would probably not be part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. She'd probably initiate a procedure to replace um, and appoint key positions uh, which would favor the no-fly zone and also favor um, confrontation with Russia, which could lead us into blowing up the planet. Okay? But blowing up the planet is not part of the election campaign, unfortunately, because people would then get a little bit nervous. But um, I I looked into the matter of what kind of of a pentagon would be initiated under Hillary. And in effect, she was appointing... Um, Michel Angelique Flournois, I, I pronounce it in the French way, it's, um, as who previously was under Secretary of Defense for Policy, uh, and uh, uh, Flournois has said very unequivocally that she's in favor of a, of a, a no-fly zone over Syria. In fact, she, she says a no-bombing zone, but in fact the, the bombing zone means that you bomb the country. It, it means the same. Um, she, she, she made the statement uh, of limited military coercion to remove uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, and then she said a no-bombing zone over parts of Syria held, held by U.S.-backed rebels. Of course, U.S.-backed rebels is al-Qaeda. So that, in effect, um, she would be the likely... Um, candidate for Secretary of Defense. And as we know, the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are not appointed by the President, they're appointed by the Secretary of Defense. But in, in effect, they, they, the, the President, uh, ha, of course, has a word in, who, in who's going to be Secretary of Defense. And then, uh, uh, of course, then you get a new team of people coming in. Um, I, I, I suppose that that's that's the you know that's the scenario, and um, we then have to I think concern ourselves as to what kind of of people will be pulling the strings. Uh, I think what is very dangerous in the United States at the moment is that people who are who are in charge of pressing the button, so to speak, which might be Hillary Clinton and and uh, and. Um, of course, and Michel Angelique, um, people who are pushing the button are not, in fact, they believe their own propaganda. They, they believe that, and it, it goes back to, to a very important document, which was the 2001 Nuclear Posture Review, where they actually defined the preemptive doctrine of, of nuclear warfare. And then, subsequent to that, there was a secret meeting which was held 
uh, I think it was in 2002 or 2003, it was held at U.S. Strategic Command headquarters. It was a, it was a private meeting between Pentagon officials, CIA, uh, U.S. State Department, and members of the military-industrial complex who actually make the bombs, okay? And they defined a new avenue. And this was actually held on Hiroshima Day. Okay? They, weren't, they weren't actually commemorating anything. They were meeting behind closed doors, and they were discussing what kind of military uh, agenda is, is, uh, is involved. Uh, in terms of um, foreign policy, but also in terms of production. And, um, and in effect, I interpreted that, uh, that particular uh, initiative as some form of privatization um, of, um, you know, of nuclear war. So that, I, I think that's where we are. Uh, but another thing is when I said they believe in their own propaganda, there's something very specific there. Is that when you start when they started focusing on tactical nuclear weapons, and that was that was virtually well, it goes back to the Clinton uh, to the Bill Clinton administration. But the the discourse during the the Bush administration was that mini nukes with lesser explosive capacity between one third and twelve times the Hiroshima bomb, not negligible, are quote harmless to the surrounding civilian population because the explosion is underground, because they're bunker-buster bombs. Now, where did they get that? Uh, they hired scientists to corroborate the fact that it was harmless to the surrounding civilian population. We know that nuclear bombs have radiation and, the, and explosion and so on. Uh, it was, it, in other words, somebody put his signature on those statements, but I'm quoting from Pentagon documents, which indicates, in effect, um, that that prominent scientists were co-opted, and then afterwards, bear in mind that once you have the description of of let's say tactical weapon B sixty one eleven or twelve, um, it goes into the military handbooks, and the the procedure. Uh, following a Senate decision in, I believe, in 2002, is that these tactical nuclear weapons could then uh, belong to the conventional arsenal. And that's the situation today. So we don't even need to push the button. The button can be pushed by a three-star general in the, in the, in the you know, U.S. Central Command in the war theater. So that's a little bit the background. Yeah, so... And in fact, the national interest, uh, I think it was this week, uh, one of their headline stories was uh, America versus Russia. Will a missile defense system help uh, uh, in the global nuclear war? So, again, all these arguments and these things that, you know, used to be consigned in my in my idea anyway, my generation thought that this sort of thinking, mutually assured destruction, etc., and even talk of developing new generations of nuclear weapons would was passe. It was something that was like kind of a, locked in a time capsule of the eighties, and all of a sudden this this has now become some kind of a viable conversation. And to me, this is has a profound effect on the American psyche uh, and the psyche of the Western world. Is that there are a, an extremist minority of people within politics and within the defense contracting business. 
and the people like Ash Carter, who comes from that world, who's a, basically a, a lobbyist and salesman for the defense industry, who became uh, defense secretary under President Obama, have re, uh, revived this conversation, which should have been consigned to the dustbin of history. So, so any talk of nuclear non-proliferation or just disarmament, f- full stop, the kind of things that we saw b- you know, between uh, uh, Jimmy Carter and Brezhnev, for instance, in the late 70s, just the talk, the, the rhetoric seemed to be toning down and moving towards uh, disarmament, and now we're having a different conversation. That, to me, has a profound psychological effect on the population, and not in a positive way. Well, I, I think it really it, the propaganda is 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 part of that process because uh, note that in the post Cold War era, the the major threats to humanity is global warming. You know, you hear about global warming, global warming every day is global warming. I don't deny the fact that this is an issue, but n- nuclear annihilation uh, is far more serious. And the accidents that may occur, absolutely, uh, miscalculations, accidents, um, mistakes, mm-hmm. and and if you look at history, mistakes are often the cause of wars, and um, those have already been underscored even during the Cold War era. I mean, we know that mistakes can occur, but then when you've got um, uh, paranoia and pathological factors coming in, of course, it makes it much more dangerous when Hillary says we will obliterate them, talking about Iran, and obliterate Iran with nuclear weapons. <laughs> uh, those statements were made. She says, oh, the nuclear, nuclear war is on the table. Nuclear war is on the table. Mm. And if I'm, if I'm president of the United States, we will obliterate them, talking about Iran. And, um, well, maybe she didn't mean it exactly that way. She was talking about if they ever threaten Israel, we'll do, we'll do what we want to do. But the thing is that we have somebody who is, um, well, she's not alone. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily point necessarily to Clinton because a decision to wage nuclear war is part of a broader consensus of key individuals within both within the administration, the think tanks, Wall Street. Um, and ultimately, I don't think that th- that that decision will rest on on a particular individual. But what is important is the commander in chief can always say no to that decision. Yes. Okay? Yes. And because the, right now we 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 have. Um, we have a situation of escalation, of military escalation on, on Russia's immediate border with NATO and troops going in and so on and so forth and, uh, and threats of, of no-fly zone. But um, perhaps Obama still has an element of sanity and, and he, he's not going to push the button. But the thing is that the, the whole entourage... Um, military entourage, uh, the decision-making process within NATO, within the Pentagon, the CIA, etc., is such that it could lead to the, uns- you know, to the to the unthinkable, which is which is a nuclear war. And I, well, I've been researching this at least for the last ten years. I can tell you, it is impossible to describe what the world will, would be like 
in the wake of a nuclear war until you actually experience it, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can't start build scenarios. Well, the Rand Corporation, the Rand Corporation is, is building those very scenarios as we speak, um, behind the scenes and think tanks like that. Um, and they, they have done for many, many decades. Um, that, but I think what you're describing here, this collective decision or this collective move towards that kind of a confrontation, it's almost like a fait accompli has to be set up, right? And this is a, a culmination of many different situations accumulated, the likes of which we've actually seen. You pointed out NATO uh, encirclement of Russia, really forcing a military confrontation on Russia's borders on multiple fronts. But then you have the people like Victoria Nuland, who is a real, uh, was a real catalyst, a neoconservative appointed by uh, Obama and Clinton, uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Eastern European Relations or something like this, one, one of the main drivers of the coup d'etat in Kiev in 2014. And then you have Susan Rice, you have Samantha Power, and look at Samantha Power's behavior in the United Nations, accusing Russia of bombing a UN aid convoy with no evidence. That's the kind of dangerous stuff that could lead to that fait accompli where you might actually be very close to a confrontation. This is my concern. No, absolutely. But the the thing is that uh, when you have uh, organizations such as the Rand Corporation um, actually um, building a, a scenario of war with China, I think that's, of course, we have to think of that. Yes. Uh, that That's, uh, uh, you know, that's very, very dangerous. Uh, um, you know, they, they've come up with, uh, with this uh, notion that, uh, uh, that if you have a war with China, you can actually win a war with China. Okay. Uh, and, and they brought out this, this, uh, this report, which is in a, in a sense is it's absolutely devastating, um, uh, that, um, that you, you, you could, uh, think of, of, uh, of winning a war against China and saying, well, um, it, it's called thinking through the unthinkable. It's, it's a Rand Corporation document, which was published, I think, a, a couple of months back. It came out in August, okay? And um, it, it says very explicitly, uh, it's a wargaming type of exercise, and it says very explicitly um, that uh, if we, uh, you know, if we have a war with China, we'll win that war with China, and if necessary, we'll use nuclear weapons um, against them. And then it 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 concludes that it says, well, the Chinese better buckle up and <laughs> yeah, and and cave in to our demands if they don't want us to to nuke them. And they might decide to nuke us, but that won't work. Something of that order. I mean, it, it, it's it's a chilling um, uh, analysis. But the you know, the Rand Corporation never acts on it, on its own behalf. And this particular study, war with China, um, thinking through the unthinkable, was commissioned by the U.S. Army. It's not. It, it's a U.S. Army report, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's federally funded uh, research for the United States Army, and it says it right at the outset of the report. 
Yes. Yeah. And, and the, the problem, uh, the problem is, you know, the problem could be one of two things. This is my opinion and you can weigh in on this afterwards, but I think there's two main problems, um, in, in Washington, DC. The, the first, the first problem is I think that there's a whole world that's, that's moved, that's moving and moving on past the 20th century, uh, kind of, uh, this, the, the binary stale paradigms. That, that worked and, and were effective in, uh, projecting power and, uh, hegemony, as it were, in the 20th century. And the, the world's changing rapidly. And I think there's, there's the, the people in power in Washington are very resistant to this change. They're resistant to recognize that Russia has legitimate national interests or that, that China is actually the economic engine of, of the planet of the world right now and not the United States. The United States might be the financial engine in Wall Street, but it's certainly not the economic engine anymore. And and so there's this resistance to change. And there's also this idea um not wanting to accept or recognize uh that other nations um might have an idea of the destiny of their own. And I think this is a kind of a very new realization um, that maybe Washington and people in power have to come to, to really to have a, some vision of a 21st century world that might be multipolar, for instance. And my fear, Michelle, is that the, this resistance to change, this resistance to reality might put the United States in a position where, uh, through its own stubbornness, might be pushing towards, uh, in, in unnecessary confrontations and creating generational enemies. Um, this is my biggest fear. Yeah, it's very, um, you know, it's a very difficult uh, and complex thing to assess. But uh, when you look at war with uh, China, um, one should also understand, uh, one should understand because U.S. foreign policy is not monolithic and U.S.-China relations are not monolithic. Um, I went to China, uh, um, well, I was there last year, but that was on a previous visit, and I was invited to the Academy of Social Sciences to give a, a lecture. And, um, and I warned, I said, listen, your country is surrounded by U.S. military facilities. And um, then... Um, one of the Chinese scholars of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which, of course, is supported by the Communist Party, said, Professor Chosodovsky, what you have given us is a left-leaning perspective. <laughs> <laughs> now, I said, I, what, I said what, what is a left-leaning perspective to tell you simply that your borders are surrounded and you're not doing anything? And um, the thing is that Within the Chinese elites and the intellectuals, they're very pro-American. Uh, secondly, you have um, you have um, uh, close ties in the economic and financial spheres because uh, China signed an agreement in 2001 prior to its accession to the um, to the World Trade Organization. It was in September 2001, which allows. Western financial institutions to enter the Chinese banking landscape and have full rights uh, right down to the retail level. We don't even have that in Canada. Under the Canada Banking Act, we have no American banks here. Abs oh. 
They come in through the back door, perhaps, but there are no American banks in Canada. And there, from one day to the next, the Chinese give open door to, to financial. Open door is a colonial term, which the U.S. coined in, in, the, in the late 19th century to describe their relationship with China. Well, they, they've got it now. So it's, it's not monolithic. And, and in effect, I'd say, to a large extent, um, China is China has uh, is very much dependent on on the United States from a from an economic financial standpoint, and they're very much U.S. financial interests are very much embedded within the Chinese uh, banking landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, between between these two leading uh, presidential candidates. Who uh, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Do you think there's a there's a a marked difference between how one of those might um, proceed? Let's say let's say with the relationship with China, um, and also and also with Russia. We have to because Russia and China are also very linked economically and politically. Um, so I guess if you're tangoing with one, you're going to dance with the other. Um, so is there a big difference between these two candidates in terms of how they're going to engage? With, uh, with, with Russia and China going forward? Well, you know, I think the assessment is partly based on Trump's election campaign statements. He has said, we don't want to have war with Russia. We're going to engage in, in, uh, in diplomacy with them. Now, I don't think that... that Trump is a foreign policy whiz kid by any means, and I, he may be good in real estate and casinos and so on, but he's not. A, he doesn't have the track record of a politician. But ultimately, if if he were to be elected president, I think that the the dynamics would be quite different because. Um, people who would be brought into the administration would not be quite the same people as, let's say, <laughs> as, uh, as Hillary Clinton. And there's always, again, I, I, I've, I believe that U.S. presidents are proxies. Up, up to a certain point, they are proxies. Mm-hmm. But uh, and certainly George W. Bush was a proxy and Obama was a proxy. Uh, so, but the question is that even being a proxy, you still can exert, um, you can still make important decisions. And ultimately, that is where a Trump administration may be um, much safer. I mean, Hillary is a very dangerous candidate. There's no question about it. Um, Trump would put together a different foreign policy uh, team. Um, his links with Wall Street might be different. Uh, now, I, I'd like to just make a comment because we we look at Trump as being a, a critic of a right wing critic of uh, of elite privileges and um, and Wall Street and and the Washington think tanks and corruption and so on and so forth. What we have to bear in mind, and perhaps this is related to this most recent uh, release by, uh, by the FBI, uh, which is uh, certainly an object of controversy, we have to understand 
that the, the elites are not monolithic. They're not monolithic, and people who decide and who have power within the system, whether it's within the the intelligence, military intelligence community on the one hand, Wall Street, the Washington think tanks, it's not entirely monolithic. The neocons are monolithic, but there are certain strands which are not within the mono, within the neocons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that it's very difficult now to to analyze this because behind this recent re- release by by um, by the FBI, um, this could sway the outcome of the election. Uh, John Zogby, who, who is a pretty important uh, authority as far as opinion, uh, public opinion is in in in, uh, in the United States of America has made the statement very categorically. This story is a very big deal for several reasons. He said it. And um, uh, he, 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 um, he says that the issue uh, threatens to derail her candidacy. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, who is behind FBI Director James Comey? Who is behind him? He didn't take that decision on his own, by no means. No, no. They had. There must have been some very powerful brokers behind him, okay, to to say, "Well, go ahead with it, and we'll we'll back you out." And uh, and I I would I I uh, whether this was done in support of Trump or otherwise, but there must be something there that even within the the very powerful establishment that people are having certain hesitations with with regard to Hillary. Now, um, I, I've always said, of course, you need a criminal record to go to be appointed president of the United States. <laughs> but in this particular case, you don't want to have somebody who's going to be totally dysfunctional in one form or another. And, and you don't want to have a situation where the other candidate starts uh, going after her in the, up to the Supreme Court with uh, voting irregularities, which are absolutely certain to occur. And I, I, when I started looking into this, um, this, these recent developments, there's one thing which nobody has, has actually considered to this point is what uh, is called COG, continuity in government. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we have to look at it very carefully. There's a crisis which, is, which may be unfolding in the days leading up to November 8th, definitely. But there's also a potential constitutional crisis which may occur in the wake of November 8th, and either before or after the inauguration of the, of the next president in, in January, particularly if Hillary is, is elected. And, um, and that um, has to do with the fact that Hillary's criminal record is, is extensive. It's not limited to the emails. It's limited uh, to a whole series of, of, of occurrences, to, uh, to, uh, to, to less recent history uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Arkansas, um, it's uh, linked, of course, to the Hillary, to the Clinton Foundation. Um, it's linked to um, alleged um, 
um, well, it's linked to the fact that people in 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 her entourage, some of them have died unexpectedly or, or committed suicide. There's a lot there, and and um, I, I think uh, certainly the U.S. system is is predicated on corruption and lies and criminality, but at the same time, those are sustained in as much as there's a consensus within. The various factions, I, I insist, the various factions of the establishment that they can actually go along with that. And I, I suspect that what has happened with um, FBI Director James Comey's uh, release, which was not his own initiative, is that some very powerful interest groups are behind that and they, are, they have now... Um, come to the conclusion that they don't want Hillary in, in, in office because otherwise, why would he have done that? Yeah. This is uh, in a scandal ridden, uh, first year of the Clinton, uh, Clinton presidency would mean, uh, complete dysfunctionality, as you said, uh, gridlock, um, basically, you know, the, the country torn in two, you know, really not good politically. And if there's an agenda and behind the, you know, the, the people, the shadow government, the deep state or the, the people who really run the country as, as you referred to, um, if there's an agenda that needs to be rammed through or nudged through, whether that's a foreign policy agenda or so forth, that this is going to be harder and harder to do with a dysfunctional, uh, uh, administration, at least in the first couple of years. So that that's that that could be a, a one underlying factor there. I agree with you. Um, there's also a crisis of confidence with the FBI. I mean, their reputation in public opinion polls uh, really low. I mean, like J. Edgar Hoover levels um, in terms of corruption. And this is always they've always seemed to be above the fray. And so you can't have the top law enforcement agency in the country with below a 50 percent approval rating. You've got a serious uh, con like possibly that would contribute to a continuity of government crisis. Um, Loretta Lynch meeting Bill Clinton on the tarmac in Phoenix, Arizona. Bill said he was just playing golf, but he's meeting right before Lynch basically uh, gave Hillary a free pass. On the, uh, and Comey said they, they won't pursue any, don't recommend pursuing any, uh, indictments or prosecution. So that's, I think that is a big thing. Um, and I think, I think the dem, what I, what was explained to me, Michelle, by, by one political operative said, never underestimate the Chicago crowd's ability to overplay their hand or overdo it. And I think the White House overplayed its hand early on on this, trying to cover it up for the sake of the Clinton candidacy. And now it's kind of blowing up in their face a little bit. That that that's one of my theories on this. Yeah, I when when you said um, that uh, the reputation of the FBI is um, has gone down to the most lowest level, um, I I think I think you're, first of all you're absolutely right, but um, perhaps that this particular event. Maybe instrumental in pushing it up. Is that? I'm I'm giving you a sort of a Canadian. Sure. Uh, yeah, it can do, swing, swing back up. Yeah, clean back up because then they say no. The FBI is not corrupt. It can't. They can't be co-opted. They're acting as a as a as a law enforcement uh, entity which we support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, of course, maybe. Uh, 
you know, maybe the FBI will run for the office. Who knows? But no, I. I uh, but but the, the other aspect which I I think I would emphasize now um, is that the statement made by General Dunford. Um, it reflects a consensus. It's not only him, okay? The military, the military are not the people who instigate wars. That's very important. Yes, the throughout history, yeah. yeah, they do not instigate wars, and on the whole, they are far more peacemaking. They have a more peacemaking mentality than the civilians, than the foreign policy architects. Now, what he said is probably part of a consensus at the highest levels of the military hierarchy. They must be discussing and debating these issues among themselves. And um, consequently, I think that um, there must be within the armed forces, maybe even within intelligence, a large body of officials who are dead against um, the Clinton no-fly zone unipolar world perspective, which could ultimately lead to the unspoken uh, World War Three um, confrontation with with the Russian Federation. And those people, I think, um, you know, if if we if we look at it from the activist point of view. We should harness those people into making into into um, you know opening up avenues so that they can express themselves even outside the realm. Of course, they have a they have a certain code of of, of communication and conduct. But I'm I'm certainly with. It's not something which is happening at the grassroots because at the grassroots of the military, they don't dare to to oppose. It's 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 very hierarchical. But the the, the upper brass, I'm sure, it's an object of discussion. And one should not exclude the possibility that this these high-ranking people will rebel in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, that would be a sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it's, it's, it wouldn't necessarily be a military coup, but it would be something by saying, no, we're not going along with this, okay? You want to wage nuclear war in Russia... You know, um, go and buy yourself. <laughs> the, you know, we're not doing it. Yeah, I mean the rank, the rank and file that that I've been in touch with on the U.S. side of the military. You know, last thing they they want, and they're not talking about a war with Russia at all. In fact, they're just hoping that that Afghanistan and Iraq and everything else will wind down. Um, that's the impression I get on the Russian side. The people that I've been in touch with, that the last thing in the world they want is to have any war or any conflict, especially with the United States. Okay. And so, so I, I agree with you on that point, you know, that the military is much more conservative than, uh, than people might give him credit for. On the other hand, on the political side, Michelle, I mean, the, the rhetoric is off the scales. The hyperbole is like something I've never seen before, not even in the Cold War. I mean, Reagan made some uh, comments like, you know, the, the pass in passing the evil empire and, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear that wall down and all this other stuff. It's almost tame in comparison to what we're hearing right now. 
And then there's also these people, ex-military people, who are very dangerous, who are working on, are sitting on the boards of Lockheed Martin, and then they come on CNN and they come on Fox as foreign policy experts or military experts, and they're basically talking up war language, um, which I believe translates. You know, their their interest is clear. It's uh, to translate into share prices and dividends for shareholders of Boeing and Raytheon and General Dynamics and all these companies. Um, there's a definite connection. Those are the dangerous ones, the retired generals who sit on the boards. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's important to make that distinction. I agree with you. You know, there's those who are active in active duty and those are ex-military and then the consultants and the politicians are saying very different things. But, I mean, you know, in, in a sense... Those um, that discourse is really the neocon discourse. Um, uh, it, it 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 has its own dynamics. It's not to say that it it could change from one administration to the next, uh, but it's clear that we we've never seen anything of this nature. Even during the Cold War, people were polite. Okay, mm-hmm. they 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 uh, they exchanged views with the Soviet Union. There was there were. There was there was certain aggressive language when uh, uh, Khrushchev took off his shoe at the United Nations Security Council. I remember that, and started banging on the table. But we, yeah, we we've gone very far. But there's a, you know there's another element which didn't exist uh, in the 1970s is that every statement which is made by a senior official goes immediately into the news chain and becomes the object of speculative of speculative trade on financial markets. Yes. Uh, and we can think of that. So that all, all you have to do is, uh, I won't mention names, that the, the prominent institutional speculators on Wall Street instruct officials, and then they say, could you talk about uh, something uh, that this might affect the economy in such a way, et cetera, et cetera, and then, uh, you know, smear Putin and say that whatever it might be, and then they will have already a, a prior knowledge of these statements. That's how Bloomberg became a, a, a multimillionaire. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very different dynamics when you, you have hump and, a pump and dump in the oil price, uh, which is used as, a, as an instrument to destabilize Russia, um, and at the same time, it's used as an instrument to make billions and billions of dollars. So that as long as Russia is uh, is being smeared, the price of oil is going to go down. Yeah. Now, so the, 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 there's that. But I I think that the, this clique of people who make these statements, they're really the they're the product of the of the Iran Contra Gate um, generation, so to speak. You know, it's it, it's. It's very cliquish, linked up to U.S. intelligence, to the think tanks in Washington. Um, but I, I can't say that that's, uh, that, uh, that's something which could be reversed. Uh, one could easily think of a logic which would reverse this, uh, this discourse and return us to some more civilized diplomacy. And I think that probably under Trump administration that might happen. I don't see it under Clinton administration. No, not not based on what we've heard uh, going so far in this campaign. It's quite shocking, quite frankly. But uh, no, yeah, we'll, 
we'll see what happens. Um, it'll be very interesting. Uh, ten days until uh, November eighth, and uh, certainly we'll, we'll let's hope that some something doesn't get put into motion in Syria specifically that's going to create a fait accompli for whoever becomes the next U.S. president. Let's hope that that's not on the White House's um, agenda. Let's say their blacklist uh, agenda for the next uh, two weeks. I hope, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. Um, I would like to see the situation uh, in Syria uh, stabilize um, and uh, the people be be able to return to that country who who have fled because of the uh, the violence. So, but um, we we uh, we're going to end this segment now. But uh, Professor, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, I'd like to be on the program. Yeah, and we we could we could we could drill into quite a few different uh, niches of this conversation, I'm sure, and um, I would like to do that in the future uh, with you if you are available to come back. Um, there's certainly a lot of areas worthy of expo- exploration uh, on this topic. But um, just before we go, uh, in terms of Global Research uh, Bookstore and Press, I know you've got some amazing books and reference material up there. Uh, is there anything in particular that you're highlighting right now in terms of uh, publications? Well, we've just recently published a book on Syria by um, uh, by Professor Tim Anderson. I think it's a very it's an outstanding uh, book, uh, uh, which is called uh, "The Dirty War on Syria." Uh, it's carefully documented. It can be purchased on our on our site. My latest book is called The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. It's a collection of, of uh, essays on, on uh, different uh, countries and how this is inserted into a broader framework um, that uh, has come out, um, uh, came out last year. Yeah, we've got a link to that book on our show page right now, uh, the, the Globalization of War by Michelle Shafazovsky. That's on the, on our show page now. So if you are interested, we've had Tim Anderson on this program before. Uh, excellent and, uh, very well documented work. Uh, Tim's work, I do recommend that too. So go to Global Research Bookstore. There's a link on the show page right now. Uh, I do recommend people pick up uh, at least one of these books. Uh, for their own personal education reference, and also to be able to share it with uh, your friends and colleagues too, um, valuable resources. But uh, thank you very much, Professor. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We're delighted to be on the program. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Michelle Chofidovsky from GlobalResearch.ca and Ottawa University. We're going to take a short break and connect Vanessa Beely. Uh, from Europe, live on the live link just after these messages. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stick around. We'll be right back. Better. Stronger. Faster. 